My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. Then you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I get to preach about my favorite book of the Bible. Um, I was, you know, looking at the, the different books that we could preach on throughout the coming year as we go through all of them together and walk through the Bible. Um, and the one that stood out to me was my favorite one, the book of Job. Um, I know the book of Job is not a very popular book. Usually it's kind of a slog to get through. The, the 39 chapters in the middle are kind of like filler. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a long book. Um, when I was thinking back to it, I was like, I think that book's about three or four chapters long, right? It's not. It's very long. <laughs> a lot of poetry and, and, uh, and prose, or uh, a dialogue. Um, but it is my favorite book, and over the next two weeks, I get the opportunity to present it to you, why that is, why it is my favorite book of the Bible. So hopefully by the end of the next two weeks, you'll have some idea of why I call it my favorite book of the Bible. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to tell you a quick story. So a couple months ago, I was sitting over on the left side of the auditorium, uh, your right, um, and uh, this is where my family always sits over here. If you ever want to come see us, we're over here. Uh, and it was during about announcement, greeting time, somewhere around there, and, and uh, a guy came and sat next to me. And it was one of those moments where somebody uh, appears next to you, and I was worshiping, and I turned around, and I was like, oh, oh my gosh, someone's there. And uh, we ended up having a bit of a conversation. We started a conversation, and he serves here on the weekends, and, uh, and uh, he, he was telling me about how he was having to go room to room in search of a thieving child. This child had taken a radio from their teacher uh, in the classrooms back there, and, uh, and they were, like, setting off sirens on it and, like, you know, babbling into it and, and giggling into it, and they were trying to figure out who it was that had stolen the radio. They never found him. So... You know, uh, the safety team, the parking team are just hearing these like squawking noises in their, their earphones. I felt kind of bad for them. But uh, the conversation began to take a shift. We started talking about um, ministry because we we're both doing ministry. And he asked me, how, how are you feeling about youth ministry? How do, you, how do you feel as the youth pastor? I was like, man, it's my favorite thing in the world. And he paused for a second. He said, that's really good. And then he said, well, hey, I, I've had a question that I've been puzzling over the past couple of weeks, and I, I would love to, to kind of broach the question to you and see what you say, say to about it. You know, what, what are your thoughts? 
Um, I was like, okay. Um, he said, do you have time to call later? I said, yeah, yeah. Now, you have to understand, I'm, you know, I'm young, and this guy's, you know, nearing middle age. He's married. He's had a job for a good while. Confident, you know, he looks like he has his life together. I, I'm 22, and I have too much gel in my hair. Like, uh, it's, we're, we're not at the same level is what I'm trying to say. And, and so I'm thinking, like, what, what do I have to offer this guy? Um, so, so we get on the phone a couple hours later, and, and he broaches the question to me. Um, and he was looking at it from the perspective of, you know, this is, a, this is a question that new believers ask. It was a question that came up in a conversation with uh, a, uh, a loved one of his who, who he was not sure where his faith was really at. Um, and, and so it was a question that new believers ask. So he was asking me because I work with youth. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, sounds good. What, what, what's your question? So he, he gave me a little backstory. You know, I was talking with this loved one, and the topic of faith came up, and I was trying to kind of kindle some faith in this, in this loved one, and, uh, and this question came up. I wasn't sure how to answer it. Um, so I gave, he said he gave his best answer. He told me what he said. It was a pretty good answer. But here's, here's the question. I want you to think about how you would answer this question if it came up to you. If there really is a personal, loving just, all-powerful God, a God that could do anything, that could move mountains, that can speak things into existence, and that's personal, that loves his creation, how is it that we still see innocent children all around the world suffering by, either through natural causes or by the hands of malicious men it doesn't really matter. Why, why do we see so much suffering? Why, how, how come kids die around, all around the world of starvation and poverty and malaria and, and even things like kidnapping and trafficking? How could a good God allow something like that? That's a hard question to answer. I took an, this is the funny part, I took an entire class on this in college, and yet when the question hit me, I, I kind of got hit cold. It's like, whoa. That's a hard question to answer. It's a question that throws us off our game a little bit. The, the thing is, it's so simple, right? It's, it's such a simple question. You could hear this kind of question out of the mouth of a child. And yet, philosophers, theologians, scholars all throughout history have attempted to answer the question and have come up short. Every generation has somebody, or probably a handful of, of really academically inclined people, who try to give a cohesive answer, but then they end up rejecting the generations before them's answers, and they try to come up with their own, and then their answers are rejected, and the next generation comes along and tries to give an answer. It never really works. We're never really satisfied with the answers. The question is framed more simply, uh, simply and popularly as, why does God allow uh, bad things to happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? It seems like if God is good, and God is able to make the final decision about his, how his creation is going to look, we wouldn't see the suffering and the evil, and especially the undeserved suffering and evil, right? We could, we could understand it if it's all for justice, right? If, if somebody did something bad and we, they were just receiving the fruits of, of their actions. But unfair suffering strikes us as wrong if we believe in a good and powerful God. 
this, uh, this question is known as the problem of evil. Right? The problem of evil. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And uh, as it's formulated, it's, it's, it's called a trilemma. It's a trilemma. It's like a dilemma. A dilemma has uh, two opposing points, two points that are kind of competing. Um, they, don't, they can't work together. A trilemma has three. So this is, a, this is a popular one. I was looking at Wikipedia and looking at a bunch of different trilemmas, and there's a ton of them. Um, but this one is a common one. I think I learned this one when I was young on the Bernie Mac show. I don't know if you, anybody remembers that. But I think in the episode, he's trying to redo his, his like, living room or something. It's, it's downstairs. And uh, he says, you know, you can, you, can, you can have it done well. You can have it done well, uh, good. You can have it done fast, like gets done quickly. Or you can have it done cheap. But you can only choose two of those things. If you get it done really well and it costs you nothing, you're expecting months, right? It's not going to be done quick. If you want it fast and cheap, right, you don't want to pay a lot for it and you want it done quickly, don't expect it to be very, very good. If you want it done uh, good and for low cost, oh, I think I already did that one, uh, good and fast, um, you're going to be paying a lot of money. Right? So if we take the same format, the problem of evil actually substitutes all of its points in. Do we go to the next one? Yeah, so this one here. So we have at the top God being powerful, God having the final say, God being able to speak things into existence, God having the ultimate say in how his creation looks. And then we have God's justice, his goodness, his, his love, his faithfulness, his compassion, the fact that he is a good God. And then somehow we have unfair human suffering, unexplained human suffering. It doesn't make sense to us. It even might extend to evil and sin, depending on how you approach the question. But only two of these make sense at a time. If God is all-powerful and humans are suffering unfairly, then can we still call God good? But if God—we we do believe God is good— but we still see that humans suffer unfairly sometimes. So maybe he's just not powerful enough to stop it. Maybe he tries, but he's just not able to. Or maybe he is all-powerful and just, but then why do we suffer? It just doesn't make sense. The problem for Christians arises in that we do believe all three of these to be true. We believe in the God of the Bible, and the Bible presents a God to us who is all-powerful, who is just and good, but the Bible makes no attempt to hide from us that we unfairly suffer. So what do we do with this? The question becomes ours to answer. To make matters worse, this is a question with teeth. It has implications for our faith. There are some of you in this room who came in this morning because this, with this question kind of loading down on your back because you've been suffering and you thought you were doing everything pretty okay. You're not perfect, right? None of us are perfect. But you probably aren't deserving what you feel like you're suffering and you don't understand. Maybe you were really feeling firm in your faith. You feel like you're going somewhere with God and now... Now that thing just fell apart. 
Life's not going the way it feels like it should be going. And so this question is nagging your mind, nagging your heart, and you don't know what to do. Maybe you're trying to keep the emotions back because you feel like I'm describing you right now. The question is ours. But I I think probably most of you didn't come in thinking about this. Uh, You know, this this would be a strange thing for you to be conceiving of coming into church, for most of you. Some of you are going along with no complaints in life, or nothing big. You know? um, and some of you are just on the, on the mountaintops with your faith. You're feeling like the best you've ever felt. But I'd like to levy to you that you know, maybe that bliss won't last forever. Maybe there will be a point in your life where you're going to suffer and you're not going to understand why. And then this question is going to come knocking on the door. And you're going to want a question, or you're going to want an answer to that question to anchor you and your faith. So enough beating around the bush then. I'm sure a couple of you have connected the dots. The, the book of Job is the Bible's story of God allowing bad things to happen to good people, specifically one good person. And so if we're going to look for an answer to the question anywhere, I think it, it fits to look in Job. We should look in Job. Um, I'm, I'm going to argue today that the book of Job constitutes a form of answer to the question of the problem of evil. I believe that it offers us a model of how it is that we ought to walk as humans in relationship to God when things aren't going our way, when everything falls apart, when misery strikes us. And by the end of next week, my hope is that we'll have not only a biblical answer to the question the problem of evil poses— but also kind of marching orders for what it means to be a good Christian in the midst of suffering. So then let's go and look at the book of Job. Let's see what we have, what, what, what it has to offer us. As I've studied the book of Job over the past um, two months or so, um, it seems to me that to get to the point of conflict, you only need to understand three points. So for those of you who haven't read the book of Job or you need to, a brush up, this will be like a quick overview of what the book of Job, kind of the, the main movements of the story. So the first comes to us in chapter one, um, and it's the introduction to the man named Job. Um, the narrator starts off by telling us, that Job is, and I quote, blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Now, if you have spent any time in the book of Proverbs, this, this language is ringing some bells for you. Because this is the exact phrase that's used over and over again in the book of Proverbs to denote like somebody who's like good friends with God. A wise person, a righteous person, a person who's walking in the path of life. Right? So all of a sudden, we get a picture. This, this man named Job is really a righteous man. He feared God, stayed away from evil. A com- complete integrity, right? The second point we get is that he's pretty rich. He's incredibly rich. It says he had seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 3, camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Like, this is a big... Uh, maybe inheritance or a, a, a big, a big uh, very prosperous piece of uh, wealth 
And wealth was one of the factors that was considered in the ancient world if you were asking, is that person uh, in line with God's will? Well, are they wealthy? Are they prosperous? That was a question you would ask. Because if God loves them, then he's going to be blessing them. So, so this is even backing up more the idea that Job is righteous, and in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Let's just take a a quick pause. Seven sons and three daughters, and it says that they got along with each other. They would actually eat at each other's houses. Like, that's the biggest miracle of them all, right? Ten children that get along with... Anyways, I just... I have have several siblings, and that's... Yeah, no. Uh, (laughs) That's unrealistic. The third point, the third thing that we're told about Job that's really fascinating isn't actually found in, in the text itself. It's found kind of implied in the name that's given to this man. The man's name, Job, means hated one. It comes from the same root word as the word for enemy, the one who is made into an enemy. It's the it's the, the flipped-around version of that. So it's not the enemy, it's the one who's made into the enemy. It's the one who's treated like a hostile, hated one, persecuted one. So now the question is this. We know this man is righteous. We know this man is good. We know this man is wealthy. Who hates this man? Who hates Job? Well, that brings us to the second moment in the story. The divine wager. This is a moment, so it's kind of bizarre. It switches on a dime, the storyline in chapter 1. We're introduced to this man named Job, and all of a sudden a hook is put into our mouths, and we're yanked up into heaven. All of a sudden we're in the divine courtroom. We see God speaking to these spiritual beings called the sons of God, the children of God. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily reflected in the NLT translation of it. Um, but this, these group of spirits are... are they're not really, um, yeah, uh, they're, they're, they're not really defined in Scripture. We, we don't know exactly what they are. Some people have said they're angels. Some people have said they're, they're just spiritual powers. I think they're at least spirits, but we don't really know what they are. It's, it's not made clear. But one of them sounds pretty familiar to us, named the Satan, the Satan. Now, it's the Satan, not just Satan, which is interesting because in, throughout the rest of the scriptural storyline, Satan is how it's referred. It's like a name, but here it's like a title. A lot of weird questions. It's, it's reflected as the accuser in this because that's what Satan means. Accuser, adversary. I like to think of it as like prosecutor um, because we're in the court, right? The prosecutor, the one who's coming up against the defense. So it's a strange scene. Anyways, this Satan comes and speaks with God. They're all called to an account, and Satan comes among them, and he has to give an account to God. And so it says, one day the members oh go go back there we go. One day the members of the one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord. I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And go next. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. So now, just a quick note. 
The narrator agrees with God in this. And God agrees with the narrator. Job is righteous. God has made here an explicit statement of Job's righteousness. There can be no doubt about it. Job is righteous. Um, so we can move to the next bit here. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. Or stated as a question in the NIV, Does Job fear God for nothing? The reason I wanted to include this here is because this is kind of the definition of what the... This is the question I want you guys to be asking as we move into the rest of the story. As we move into the rest of today's message specifically. Does Job fear God for nothing? It's kind of a pivotal question. For no reason? For no gain? Satan goes on. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home, and his property. You've made him prosper in everything that he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out. Take everything that he has. And he'll surely curse you to your face. So Satan is basically arguing that Job is a suck-up. That he's a teacher's pet. Yeah. Yeah, that he's doing it all for other motives. He's he's double-faced. And then God, to the shock of the reader, says, All right, you may test him. Do whatever you want with everything that he has, everything that he possesses, but don't harm him physically. Good to put that boundary in. It'll get, it'll get crossed later. Don't worry. Um, so then Satan takes the freedom to its limit. Now this is strange. This is strange that God would allow this. Why, why is God giving in to the Satan's request here? No answer is given. The mystery prevails. Satan takes the freedom to its limit. He, he brings utter disaster on Job. And he brings it, not gradually, but in one terrible day. It says, One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, A messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. I just am imagining like a field of mutton, you know? Just roasted sheep. Anyways, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but sheep. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's a funny picture. Anyways, uh, while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, and this is the kicker, this is the worst of all. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this point in the story, we can almost... Imagine Job pinching himself to see if he's still awake, feeling like everything's sounding farther and farther away. 
And it's, then we arrive at the third moment in the story when we hear Job's response. It says, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head and fell to the ground. Now, this is, this is how we would, maybe not we would react, but it's mourning. This is culturally foreign to us, but this is mourning. This is the way we would react. He's not taking this with a smile. But I left out two words. To worship. And fell to the ground to worship. Now that's alien to us. We understand the mourning and the grieving, but the worship? And Job says, and I like to quote a more familiar translation to me, naked I came from my mother's womb, Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. That is an admirable level of faith and commitment to God. In the second chapter, as if things weren't bad enough, God allows Satan to return again to Job and to take even his health away from him. And it says, So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And it's here, it's at this moment, when Job is at his absolute worst, digging beneath rock bottom, that he's confronted by two voices. Two voices that seek to console him and comfort him, but actually are just trying to figure out how this could be the case. The first voice is the voice of his wife. The second is the voice of his friends. Today we're going to talk about the voice of Job's wife, her response to his suffering, and, and then his response to his wife's uh, speaking. You see, uh, Job's wife, can we go back one? So Job's wife comes from this perspective. I'm, I probably shouldn't walk over there. Um, Job's wife wants to keep God powerful. So do the friends. They both agree that God is powerful in all this. But Job's wife sees Job as suffering unfairly. She keeps this point. And so she sees these two. God is powerful. Humans are, humans, Job specifically, is suffering unfairly. Well, that means God must not be just then. So she leaves this one off. And it's reflected in her response. Job's friends take the opposite view. They, they hold God as powerful, just like Job's wife. But they would say, well, God is always just and good. God can't be unjust. So Job must have done something wrong to deserve it. It's not unfair. He got what he deserved. Now, if we move to the next one here, the true faith will hold all three. And the only voice in the book of Job that's vindicated, the only voice that's called right by God is Job's voice. It's at the very end. Everyone else is rebuked, but Job stands firm. So the question I want to tackle in this week and next is, what was it that made Job's voice so salient? What was it that made Job's voice right? How did he hold all three in tension? So today, like I said, we're going to be looking at 
Job's wife, which is kind of consumeristic Christianity. And next week, we're going to talk about Job's friends, and they kind of represent a more dogmatistic approach to Christianity. And then we're going to see the tightrope that Job had to walk, to walk between them. That's just a teaser. Today, we're going to examine the short but brilliant conversation between Job and his wife. This is immediately after Job has lost everything and is broken out into sores and boils. And remember, he's scraping himself with this broken piece of pottery sitting outside in the ashes of what used to be his estate. And it's here, it's in this moment, that his wife comes out and sees all that he is, this wretch of a husband, sitting outside, covered in, in leprous spots, trying to relieve the swelling and itching of the sores. And she says something that strikes us as stark and blunt. She asks a question, and then she offers a suggestion. And here's those. Let's, let's hear what she has to say. She says, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Now that's harsh, especially from a spouse. There are maybe a few spouses in this room. It dawns on me who have that attitude right now. It's okay. The Lord forgives. Um, this is a harsh response, especially in all of his grieving. But we have, to, we have to step into our shoes and understand how she was really feeling to get a better idea of why she said something like this. First off, Job's kids are her kids. She lost all her kids as well. And what Job had was what she had. She's lost everything as well. So she's coming from a place of grief and mourning as well. She's not breaking out into leprous spots, but everything else she's endured. But more than that, if anybody knows how much integrity Job has, it's his wife. She sticks by him every day. She sees it every day. She was there when he would get up and sacrifice for their children, just in case one of them may have sinned. She walked with him into the public square, the city square, where she knew, she saw that no one treated Job poorly. Nobody would speak curse or ill of him. She knew he was righteous. She saw all of the widows and the orphans coming to their house to share a meal. She knew Job was righteous, better than anyone else. That was empirical data to her. She understood it. So it couldn't be that Job has sinned. She knows that. So that's why she asks the question, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? She's saying, you have integrity, but why maintain it anymore? What's the point? If you followed all the rules, if you did everything right, if you were truly righteous— And then God still did this to you? What's the point? Recognize that her response is curse God and die. She's saying God isn't worth praising. Why? Not because he's not powerful, but because he's not righteous. He fell through on his side of the deal. He was supposed to bless you and curse the wicked to punish the wicked, but he flipped him around. He got it wrong, and there's no point in sticking with him anymore. There's no point. 
Abandon him. Take his name with you to the grave. But Job sees something almost distasteful in his wife's response. And, and, and wrong. He says, uh, you talk like a foolish woman. Now, men, don't... It's biblical, but don't... Yeah, don't. Uh, <laughs> no, don't do that. Uh, yeah. I'm not married, but I know that much. Don't, don't do that. You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So he's, he's presenting a faith that goes one step deeper than his wife's faith. He's, he's pointing out in this that she's made an assumption, a faulty assumption at that. That his wife has seen the relationship between God and humans as kind of like a business partnership. Like there was a contract that was signed. There's an unspoken agreement. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's reciprocal. It's mutual. It's symbiotic. We both gain. Job is saying something very different. He's saying, it doesn't matter what God does. Because at the heart of who I am, I'm a creature. I've been made. I was thinking this morning as I was driving here, it doesn't matter how badly a king treats his, his subjects, they still bow. And if, if we'll bow to kings who are just mere men, how much more should we bow to God, the one who gives us breath each day? So, I guess the point that I want to make tonight, tonight, I'm so used to preaching on Sunday evenings, that's funny, tonight, this morning, uh, what I want to, the point I want to make this morning is that true faith is not conditional. It does, it's not based off of what I want, whether I'm getting what I want. It goes to the very root of who I am as a creation, as a creature, as a man created by a God. The reason that God is worth worshiping, worth obeying, is not because he gives me stuff or keeps giving me what I want. It's because he made me. It's endemic to my being that I praise him. It's endemic to our being that we worship. And that's what Job's trying to say. Now, I'll confess that I would like a predictable God rather than this God. I would rather God follow my reasoning. I have some pretty good reasoning. I like, I like my way, the way my brain works. Um, I kind of wish God was like the person at the DMV, you know? I walk in, and I go to the person, and they're like, you get in this line if you need this. You go to fill out this form if you need this. And we both go on our merry way. It's, you know, it's not fun while you're there. It's boring. Sometimes weird stuff happens. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, you get what you need, you get out. That's not how our relationship with God works. It's not how our relationship with God works. The Bible isn't just a how-to manual on how to please God, how to stay on his good side so that he'll continue giving you what you want. He's not your business partner. Not primarily. He does business with men. We see that with 
the covenants that he makes and the promises. But inherently, it's all him. He is he's the prime cause. He's the first one. We, we all want this. I, I think we all want a God that's predictable. I hope that you guys want this too, and I'm not just the only one. I'm just like preaching to myself up here. I'm guessing this goes deeper. But then we hear the stories over and over again of righteous people who are laid low. You know, the, and not just like the religious nutcases. I'm talking about really good people. Good people with good intentions. People who would go out and preach to people that they love and know, the people at their work, people who, who are constantly talking about what Jesus is teaching them and, and, and how much they love Jesus. And, and you see some real fruit in their faith, and then all of a sudden they're in the hospital bed. Or they're cleaning out the room of the child that just passed away. Or their wife or a husband just walks out on them. And we look at that and we go, that doesn't make sense. They didn't deserve that. But we hear the story over and over again. And I'm guessing there has to be at least one of you in this room today who's in that position right now. Like I said, you feel like you're, you're bearing fruit, like you're getting somewhere with Jesus, and, and now you're suffering. And it's not even like persecution suffering. It's just like you feel like things just aren't going your way. And the question comes to you in this moment, how will you respond to that? Will you say something like, well, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return? Could you respond like Job? Maybe you've already given up. Maybe you've already cursed God in your heart. Maybe you've, you've already pushed that button. Maybe you're just tired of all this. I'll remind you that Job's wife is never cut off. She's never thrown out of the faith because of what she said. It's never too late to revamp your understanding of who God is. But I encourage you to do it to see things differently, to see things like Job. It's hard, but it's what we're called to. I think we have to confront the question together today. What is my faith actually rooted in? Is it rooted in God's providence, or is it rooted in God? When God doesn't feel like he's providing, am I still going to stick by his side? Am I still going to push Am I still going to pray? Am I still going to exalt him? Or am I just going to give up? Because I didn't get what I want. Because I, didn't, I don't feel like I have what I need. I'm, for the next 30 seconds, this is going to be really awkward, I understand. Um, for the next 30 seconds, I'm just going to make it real quiet in here. None of us are going to talk. I just want you to bring the question before your own soul of what your faith is rooted in. Maybe there's something that you would put right next to God as something to be worshipped and obtained. Maybe there's something that if you lost it, you would give up. You're pretty sure you'd just call it quits. And bring that thing into the forefront of your mind 
the next 30 seconds. And then decide what you're going to do with that information. What are you going to do? And then once this long 30 seconds is over, I'll, I'll pray for us. And I'll invite...